Let us pray. Almighty God, grant us to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. Open our ears to hear and to understand. Open our eyes to see and to perceive. Let not our hearts grow dull, but be turned toward you that you might heal us. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. St. Matthew presents the life of Jesus as a reliving of the story of Israel. We've already seen Jesus as the new Moses, his life echoing the events of the book of Exodus, giving a new law on a new Mount Sinai in the Sermon on the Mount. In the intervening chapters of Matthew's Gospel, we see Jesus echoing his namesake, Joshua. He conquers the land, battling demons and disease. He sends out 12 disciples to spy out the land. He brings rest to the children of Israel. And Matthew then shows Jesus to be the son of David, the Lord of the Sabbath, calming evil spirits, dodging the spears of the Pharisees. Jesus' life echoes the story of Israel. So having seen Jesus as the new King David, we're not surprised when at the end of Matthew 12, the scribes and Pharisees question Jesus' authority and he warns, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Matthew will now show us Jesus as the greater Solomon, the true son of David, in whom the wisdom of God is made manifest. And so just as Solomon composed Proverbs and wisdom literature to impart his wisdom to his sons and to train young rulers in the administration of his kingdom, so now the greater Solomon composes parables parables of the new kingdom. And the first thing to notice is that this represents a kind of a subtle shift in Jesus' approach. Right, his first discourse in Matthew's Gospel, the Sermon on the Mount, had the Beatitudes and Jesus' teaching about the law and his teaching on prayer. His second discourse, which we didn't cover in our sermons, but uh, you're probably familiar with it. It entails Jesus sending out the 12 disciples to proclaim his kingdom. And it's very practical. It's their marching orders. It's what they are to do, what they are to carry, what they are to proclaim, and what they can expect. And so these things are very practical, very clear, very easy to understand. But here, in chapter 13, Jesus starts speaking in parables. They're short stories. Sometimes they're just a single word picture. They are filled with imagery and allusion and metaphor and symbolism. And the true meaning is never on the surface in the parables. It's always hidden. It's always hidden. Parables tell the truth, but they tell it slant. They are more riddle than report, more imagination than information. And so when we proclaim the good news about Jesus, when we share the gospel, we often try to be as transparent as possible, right? We try to be as clear as possible. 
And if we are misunderstood, we then take pains to, to clarify or, or to explain or to define or to detail the message we're trying to proclaim. But in the parables, Jesus is doing the opposite. He deliberately hides his meaning. He buries it in the field, if you will, to the point where even his disciples be, begin to question his teaching. And so we see this in Matthew chapter 13, verse 10. The disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive, for this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. So here we have Jesus, the greater Solomon, also claiming to be the greater Isaiah. He, he's quoting here from Isaiah chapter 6, where, where Isaiah is called to prophesy to the people of Israel long ago during the period of the divided kingdom. And God there tells Isaiah from the outset, I'm sending you to teach my people, but they won't understand you. I'm sending you to speak to my people, but they won't listen to you. I'm sending you to show my people, but they will refuse to see. Now, if someone offered you that job description and that job opportunity, would you be very excited about it? No, right? It doesn't sound very fun to me. And I don't think it sounded fun to Isaiah either. And I hear a tinge of reluctance in his response because he says about this, how long, O oh Lord? How long will I have to speak words that are not heard and perform signs that are not seen. And God replies, until I come to destroy Jerusalem and to desolate the land, until I remove the people from the land and exile them to captivity in foreign places. The time for softened hearts and open ears has passed, says the Lord. I've been speaking the truth to my people for 700 years. They've refused me long enough. And so now the only words I have for them are words of judgment, words that will further harden, further reveal their wickedness so that all the world will see I'm justified when I come in judgment and desolate their city. That was the ministry to which God called the prophet Isaiah. And Jesus says he is called to that same ministry here in Matthew chapter 13. So for 12 chapters of this gospel, Jesus has been speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees openly. He's been speaking clearly. He's been speaking convincingly. He's been giving them a chance 
a chance to respond, to repent, to receive him as the Son of God. And so for 12 chapters, how have they responded to this clear message? Well, they have called the Son of God the Son of Satan. They have conspired against the one who brings them peace. They are seeking to destroy the one through whom all things were made. And so the time for easy words has ended. So now Jesus will speak to them in parables, hiding his clear meaning from them, hiding his kingdom from them. It's a sign of judgment on Israel. How long? Until the land is desolate and its people have been removed far away. See, the parables are not always uh, these helpful sermon illustrations like we imagine they are. Here in Matthew 13, Jesus says the parables are words of judgment. They're meant to confuse. They're meant to confound. They're meant to condemn more than to clarify. Look what Matthew says later on in the chapter. Matthew 13, 34. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Now that's a quote from Psalm 78. And unfortunately, we don't have time to read that whole psalm. So I encourage you to do that sometime later this week. But Psalm 78 begins with these words Matthew quotes. The psalmist says, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. And so we ask ourselves, well, what is this parable that the psalmist speaks in Psalm 78? And what are these dark sayings from of old that the psalmist speaks in Psalm 78? And what you find out is that Psalm 78 then goes on to recount the whole sordid history of Israel's rebellion against God. And the way the psalmist does that is by recounting, first of all, all the mighty deeds that God has done on behalf of his people, particularly at the Exodus. The psalmist sings of his mighty hand in the plagues, of his delivering the people through the Red Sea, of his providing manna from heaven and, and giving his word at Sinai, all these mighty and miraculous deeds God performed to rescue and redeem the children of Israel. And then Psalm 78 goes on to recount how Israel responded to God's mighty deeds. And Psalm 78 says they responded by breaking covenant with him, by forgetting his works, by not trusting his saving power. Psalm 78 says they lied to him, they grieved him, they tested him, and they provoked him with their idolatry until, Psalm 78 says, God came in his wrath and judged them. So that's the gist of Psalm 78, and the psalmist says that's a parable. He says that's a parable. He says that's dark sayings from of old, hidden things. It doesn't sound much like the parables that we're used to, like the ones that we read here in Matthew 13, and yet Matthew says that Jesus, in his parables, is doing the same thing that Psalm 78 was doing. In fact, Matthew says Jesus' parables are the fulfillment of Psalm 78. 
And so you see both of these Old Testament passages that are quoted here in Matthew 13, Isaiah 6, and then Psalm 78, they're both about Israel's rebellion against God and their refusal to hear his word despite the miraculous deeds he's done in their midst. And so I think that gives us a clue as to how we are to interpret and to understand these parables. Could the story behind Jesus' parables, the hidden meeting, could it actually be the story of God's faithfulness to Israel and of Israel's rebellion against him? Well, let's try it on and see. Okay, Take the parable of the weeds. It's in Matthew 13, verse 24. He put another parable before them, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. Now, just real quick, before we go further, let's remind ourselves, when Jesus speaks of the kingdom of heaven, when Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven, he's not referring to the heaven where Jesus is now, where he's ascended, uh, the heaven where our spirits will go to be with Christ when we die, and the heaven from which Christ will return at the end of all things to make all things new. That place is called heaven. That's heaven proper. But that's not what Jesus is referring to when he talks about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven Jesus is talking about refers to God's rule and reign on earth. The earthly kingdom that is governed by heaven. The earthly kingdom that worships the God of heaven. The earthly kingdom ruled by the king who is sent from heaven. It's, it's the faithful remnant in Israel. It's the disciples of Jesus. It's the church. The kingdom of heaven is the community that is formed by the God of heaven and delivered by the God of heaven. And it is the community who seeks to live out God's will, to live out God's law on earth as it is in heaven, as Jesus taught us to pray. And so that's what Jesus is talking about when he speaks of the kingdom of heaven. It's God's rule and reign on earth. So remember that when we, as we go through these things. Jesus says in 1324, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and, and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now I want you to notice, Jesus is speaking this parable. He tells this parable to the crowd, to the whole town, to everybody, including the scribes and the Pharisees. And also notice, he doesn't give any explanation of this parable. He doesn't explain it. Now, I'm sure most of the people in the crowd, certainly the, the scribes and the Pharisees, they probably sensed, as we do, that Jesus is not really talking about farming techniques here, right? 
This is an agricultural advice. There's something else. There's a meaning, a hidden meaning here. And so they know there is a hidden meaning behind Jesus' story. He's not the first rabbi that speaks to them in parables. But Jesus is done making things easy on them. He's not sharing the answer key with them. He simply speaks this parable, and he leaves the crowds there to puzzle over what it might mean, what he might be saying. To them, it has not been given. But now, uh, look down to verse 36. Verse 36 says, Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. Now, now that's a really important detail, isn't it? The setting has changed, and the audience has changed. It's, it's narrowed down. Now it's just Jesus and his disciples hidden in this house. And Jesus does reveal the mystery of the parable, but he only reveals it to his disciples, right? Only to those who have opened their hearts and ears to his teaching. Only to those who have entrusted themselves to him and not rejected them. So again, uh, just as he said back in verse 11, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. That's what he tells his disciples. So he gives them the secret. Verse 37, he answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man, the field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So now that we have this parable before us, and Jesus has also given us the interpretation, does our theory hold up? When Jesus quotes Isaiah 6, when Matthew quotes Psalm 78, these parables are supposed to be about Israel's story of rebellion against God. Is Jesus telling the same story in his parable? Yes, he is. I mean, think about it. Jesus is the Son of Man. He is the Sower. And in the Gospels, we see Jesus come into the world to establish his kingdom just as a sower comes to the field to plant his crop. And we know that Jesus has planted good seed in his kingdom. He has planted the sons of the kingdom. Who are the sons of the kingdom here? It's his apostles. It's his disciples. Right? Two chapters ago, Jesus scattered the seed of his apostles out into the world of Israel. He sent them out to the lost sheep of Israel to proclaim the kingdom of heaven is at hand. These are the sons of the kingdom that Jesus has scattered on the field of the world. And yet, Jesus tells us the devil has also sown seeds into this field, the sons of the evil one. Who are they? Well, 
They are the scribes and the Pharisees and their followers. They are all those in Israel who have rejected Jesus, who have blasphemed his name, who have plotted to kill him, who have conspired against him and tried to sow his field with weeds. And so the kingdom in Jesus' day is, is this mixed field. And there are wheat. And there are also weeds. There are disciples. And there are rebels. Just as in the days of the prophets, there is a faithful remnant in the midst of a twisted generation. But now, Jesus says, now the time of harvest has come to Israel. Back in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus said to the disciples when he scattered them to his field, he said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This harvest of Israel begins with the ministry of Jesus and his disciples going out to the people, the lost sheep of Israel. And the work of the harvest, according to this parable, uh, is a work of making distinctions, isn't it? Of discerning, of judging, of distinguishing wheat from weeds and separating life-giving grain from useless chaff to be burned. And actually, we've already seen Jesus beginning this harvest in this very chapter, haven't we? Hasn't Jesus just made a distinction? Hasn't he just made a separation? Jesus said, there are those to whom it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, and there are those to whom it has not been given. There are those who have and who receive more, and there are those who have not, and even what they have will be taken away from them. There's wheat, and there are weeds. And Jesus is literally doing this harvest work right here in chapter 13, right? Because he gathers his disciples in. He literally separates them from the crowds. He separates them from the scribes and Pharisees. And he takes them into this house. And having gathered them to himself, he gives them more. They already had the parable. Now Jesus gives them more. He gives them the meaning. And now they have an abundance. And so we see the parable is already being worked out. The harvest is already occurring in the ministry of Jesus. Even in the way Jesus proclaims this parable, Jesus is also performing this parable. And this harvest will continue. The harvest continues throughout the rest of the gospel story. It also continues into the book of Acts as the good seed, the sons of the kingdom, are scattered further out into Judea and into Samaria and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. And as they are scattered, the Gentiles are brought into the kingdom. And many receive the gospel and entrust themselves to the Lord of the harvest. You'll notice a very similar parable is told in verse 47. Jesus says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and they sorted sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. Very similar idea, isn't it? But instead of being on a farm, now we're at sea. Instead of wheat and weeds, we have good fish and bad fish. 
Now we know that the sea usually symbolizes the Gentiles in scriptural imagery, and that seems to be the idea here. Jesus' kingdom will also be established among the Gentiles. And since Jesus is still speaking to his disciples alone here inside the house, he gives them the hidden meaning of this parable as well. Verse 49. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So just as Jesus sent out his disciples as laborers for the harvest, so he sends them out as fishers of men. And Jesus promises that as this gospel of this kingdom goes out, its growth will be unexpected and marvelous to behold. Two of his kingdom parables are about that. Verse 31. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Verse 33, he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Now, think about Jesus' kingdom as it stands right here in Matthew chapter 13, right? Picture what we have. We're in some backwards town in first century Palestine, and you've got the son of a construction worker and a dozen blue-collar workers that he randomly picked up off the street, and they're sitting here, hidden in Peter's basement, right, talking about weeds and fish. This is the Messiah? This is... The kingdom of heaven? This is going to change the world? The kingdom seems tiny and insignificant as a mustard seed, as harmless as a pinch of dough from last week's sliced bread. But of course, Jesus is right. From this tiny seed will grow a tree that will spread root and branch throughout the whole world. From this loaf, it will be miraculously multiplied to feed people from all nations. And so Jesus describes the growth of this tiny hidden kingdom. But still, as this great kingdom grows, it will grow as a mixed bag, Jesus says. There will be weeds among the wheat. There will be bad fish among the good. As the gospel goes out, there will be Jews and Gentiles who receive it gladly. And there will be Jews and Gentiles who reject the king and who persecute his subjects. How long, O oh Lord? How long will the harvest last? How many times will the net be cast? Until cities lie desolate. Until the end of the age. Until the end of the old covenant world in A.D. 70. When, just as in Isaiah's day, the temple will be destroyed and Jerusalem will be left desolate. And Jesus is going to talk more about this later on in Matthew. But the harvest will continue. There will be a time for people to come into the kingdom until that judgment comes. And then the harvest will continue on after that. Because the net is still being cast in our age, in the kingdom age, in the church age. The gospel is going out to the world through the labor of Christ's church and we see converts from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation gathered into the house with Jesus 
into his church, blessed with an abundance. And at the end of our age, the Son of Man will come again. The Lord of the harvest will return with his winnowing fork in hand. And he will do his work of discernment, of judgment. He will discern wheat from weeds, sheep from goats, faithful remnant from twisted generation. He says the wicked will be cast out. Even what they have will be taken from them. But to those who already had Jesus in this life, who put their trust in him and who belong to him, he will give them more. He will give them an abundance. They will reign with him in his new heavens and new earth for all eternity. This is the secret of the hidden kingdom. And so what are we to do with this hidden kingdom? How will we respond when Jesus opens his mouth in parables? What will we find in these dark sayings from of old? Will we be wheat or weeds? Will we be good fish or bad? Now Jesus counsels us how we ought to pursue this hidden kingdom. Verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. So we have parallel parables once again. And again, we have one image from the field and one from the sea. So Jew and Gentile alike are called to pursue this kingdom. And how are we to pursue it? Just as Jesus has hidden his kingdom in these dark sayings, in these parables, just as Jesus and his disciples are hidden away from the crowds in this house, so we see a treasure that has been hidden in a field. A man stumbles upon it. We have no indication he was even looking for it. It's just divinely given to him to discover this secret. But how does he respond when he discovers it? Like a new Jacob, he shrewdly goes and sells all his possessions to buy this field from an Esau who doesn't value it. Just as the disciples gave up all they have to follow Jesus while the religious leaders of Israel don't value him at all. That's how Jesus calls us to pursue his kingdom. How are we to pursue the hidden kingdom? Like a merchant who has spent his whole life cracking clams and haggling in the fish markets, buying and selling and examining and evaluating pearls to the point that his own eyes begin to look like pearls, glazed over white by the monotony of it all. But one day, he stumbles upon the mother of pearls, a thousand rainbows shimmering on its pure, milky surface, like the sunset dancing on the rolling waves of the sea. And so he stoops, and he stands, and he leans this way and that to take it all in, and then he goes all in, selling every other pearl in his collection to stake it all on this singular pearl of great price. In the same way, we are called to pursue the hidden kingdom at all costs. We are to bet the house on the hidden kingdom. 
And the kingdom is hidden in the king himself. He is the sower of the good seed. He is the Lord of the harvest who will come again to set his field in order. He is the mustard seed king who will stretch out his arms on the tree of the cross, which becomes a tree of life and stretches its branches to all nations. He is the leaven that leavens the whole lump, who gives his own flesh as bread from heaven, gives his flesh for the life of the world. He is the hidden treasure who was buried in the heart of the earth. He is the pearl his people cast before pigs to be trampled. And he is the pearl of great price who was hidden in the mouth of the grave and drowned in the heart of the sea. And though the waves of death encompassed him and the snares of death confronted him, still the mustard seed burst forth and the grain of wheat that died bears much fruit. And so against all appearances and against all expectations, the hidden king steps out of the tomb restored and resurrected and more glorious than ever before. And he ascended and he is hidden in heaven where he was given authority over all things and where we are hidden with him. From heaven then he poured out his spirit on his church, a little leaven that would grow and multiply and soon fill the whole earth. And he will return to harvest his field, to sort his catch. The hidden kingdom will be fully revealed and every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. This is the gospel. This is the parable. This is the dark saying from of old. This is the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. This is the secret given to you if you have ears to hear. So hear his word. Pursue him at all costs and prepare for his return. Let us pray to him. King Jesus, greater Solomon, you are the wisdom of God in human flesh. You are the Lord of the harvest. You are the master of the house. You are the pearl of great price who was given to pay for our sins, to redeem us and to reconcile us to the Father. So open our eyes and hearts and minds to the secret of your kingdom that we might value and pursue you above everything else in this world. And then send us out as laborers in your harvest, as fishers of men, to draw your people into your kingdom and to prepare for your glorious return. We ask these things in your name. Amen.